Yes, guys, we are back with another episode on DMC Daily. The support has been amazing. Appreciate all new subscribers. Appreciate everyone showing support. I've come to realise that I feel today, in like 2023, I'm one of the only platforms that like has no agenda, no bias. There's no... Actually, my agenda is the truth, to be honest to you. So everyone I get on here, I try and like interview everybody with an open mind. And I would suggest anyone that's watching this, watch it with an open mind. If you watch my videos... Put all your bias and stuff away. Just watch it for what it is and make your decision off of that. Uh, today, I've got a very interesting guest on. Um, I've been recently yeah, doing, obviously, my research, and I've seen you before prior to this. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Mohamed Akunji. I'm a solicitor, and uh, I've been apparently on TikTok a bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have. Um, how long have you been a solicitor for? Uh, since 2010, uh, but I've been working in the criminal space since 2000. Okay. Mm-hmm. How did you find yourself in it? Is it something that you always thought you'd do? Um, I pivoted. I think we were originally was looking for a career in medicine, um, and that looked like not a great idea. I think uh, the current situation bears that out, unfortunately. Um, And I pivoted to law. Um, There was quite a lot going on that was interesting at the time, particularly the General Pinochet scenario. I find myself quite drawn to those sort of uh, issues, fundamental issues. And I decided to change from medicine to, to law. Yeah, I managed to break away from that. Love um, that. Which he cried about, but there we go. One of those, how, how, how do you feel about it once he did find out that, you know, you still turned out to be successful and do something positive anyway? Well, I think he's positive about it now. Um, and it really helped that my other brothers went off and became doctors. So mm. I was left off the hook then. Uh, generally, you know, like, for because you, when you're a solicitor, you can be a solicitor for loads of stuff, which I've mm. always known slightly. I feel like we've always known it, but then I only prior to me coming to this case, I actually realised, because people, there was a question everyone was asking me, and they was like, ask him, um, why does he, everyone he seemed to, uh, like all of his clients seem to be people within terrorism, but what I realised is that, um, like solicitors are trained like towards a certain subject, right? So you've got people that deal with tax, some people that deal with um, marriages and... Well, I mean, um, the thing is, is, is what people know about in terms of the work we do is the interesting bits that hit the news. Mm. So generally the news are filtering, uh, you know, we have plenty of boring clients as well. Mm. Um, we have standard clients and we cover areas of law from divorce, immigration, um, conveyancing and, and crime. So we're like, you know, we, we've got quite a widespread. Mm. Um, but not that many divorce cases are going to be newsworthy, yeah, of course, you know, and not that many immigration cases are going to be newsworthy. Occasionally they happen. Um, and in crime, there's bog standard crime, um, which you have, you know, gang violence and unfortunately these things, murders, rapes, all all the standard stuff that that happens in the courts all day long. And unfortunately, that's it's so common now; it's not newsworthy. Mm. And I guess the only bits that are become terrorism or you know the really horrific crimes that happen, or, or maybe when a police officer starts raping people. You know, mm. that, that's not one of my clients. That, that, uh, <laughs> I go. Yeah, so um, even for yourself then, how do you decide like what clients to take on then? Because that's a range of people. So is there like any, what's the process to it? Um, well, I think a lot of it is to do with is it interesting, for me anyway. Yeah? Mm. If something's interesting and difficult, then I'll tend to gravitate towards it. Um, and I'm, you know, in our society now, the way the law works is unfortunately, if you want to have principles, you, it's only the rich that can afford to have principles. Um, or if you are being oppressed by the state, then there's actually very little resourcing around that. Mm. And what that's meant is that the oppressive forces that are out there have had more and more power and grown into that space 
because there's less and less, let's say, legal aid resourcing for people who are trying to defend themselves against that. And I think it becomes morally incumbent on those who are lawyers to occasionally at least go out of their way and do some cases for free mm. in order to stand as a sort of shield against that spread of that oppression. Yeah. Um, and that's, I guess, where some of the more interesting cases come from. So um, in terms of like doing cases for free and stuff, is there being, what would you say the majority, like what makes you decide, okay, this is what I'm going to do for free. Is it like a case of a woman or a child or a certain situation? Like what is it for you that you'd say, you know what, I want to go out of my way to help that person? Yeah, I, I, think, I think most people have the same sort of morality, which is, you know, the most vulnerable people you are uh, drawn towards helping and that's going to be children first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And after that, you know, it's people who are in vulnerable scenarios. So I guess in terms of, the things I'm known for more recently would have been, um, you know, Jamal Hijazi, a refugee boy who was severely bullied at school, and then what took place after that, mm. and uh, Shamima Begum. Uh, these are both very young people or children in both cases when it initially started. Yeah. And they were fundamentally issues that nobody was engaged with doing anything about. And, and both issues spoke to really deep seated fundamental rights, mm. about the right not to be bullied in school, what should a school be doing um, and a local authority be doing to, to defend you against you know, repeated violence? You think you send your children to school to have an education and get socialised, whereas in some cases some children are being sent to school and being bullied so badly they're being traumatised for the rest of their lives. Um, and who's doing anything about that? Um, so, should, sorry, sorry. So, so with that case, for example, uh, how did that get even brought to you? How did you find out about it? Well, um, there was... There was um, a family in Kokhlis. Uh, they were a refugee Syrian family, and their, both their children, their son and daughter, were being severely bullied at school. Okay. The family were reporting this all the time to the school. They went to lawyers in the area. Um, there isn't, re they didn't, you know, the refugee family they didn't have any money, and um, lawyers weren't interested in taking on the case because it's pretty difficult to stand not just against school but against the council as well. Eventually, through um, networks, they beat a path to my door. The family came to our office in London, and the level of abuse that they were describing was almost unbelievable. You know, um, we we questioned them quite strongly around that, mm. and then we asked for the authority to get the the school records. Um, two weeks later, we get the school records. It's hundreds of pages, and all of it was documented. It was shocking to see that this level of regular bullying was happening, mm. um, and the school seemed to have very little power to do anything about it and so we got engaged on that front with it so when i saw that um case it i saw it through a video like most people there was mm. like a video of kids being bullied and stuff but you're saying there's a whole list of stuff that was happening um obviously in school kids get bullied all the time in that case was it like what were the records saying was it actually to do was that the media pushing a race agenda as in like syrian boy white kid or was it just a case of kids bullying kids or was it because he was a Syrian kid? Being honest, like, sure. what was it? I mean, there, there was a mixture of things because the bullying wasn't happening just by one individual. There was a, a, a group of kids who were involved in that. The main instigator behind it was somebody who came from a family with a, a, themselves who had criminality Parent. and racism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the kids' mothers had been arrested twice for racial abuse. Yeah. Um, so there was certainly that element to it. Um, and the issue that brought it to the fore was a was the instance of bullying themselves the kids who were bullying um jamal mm -hmm. had videoed their bullying and that went viral so the media focused on that element of it yeah the aspect of it but there was you know the, the fact is is that if you're a different kid and you go to school 
come from a different environment, you've been a refugee. Kids are cruel when it comes to differences. They tend to, you know, focus on those differences and make it an issue. So race is part of it, uh, was part of it, was certainly part of this issue. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't the totality of it. Yeah. Um, so even, obviously, this case has been and done. So what was your objective within that case then? What was it to do? Like, as a lawyer, what was your job? Right, so our job was to hold the school to account and the local authority to account. But what then transpired was that um, when the the video of the bullying went viral, uh, an individual who was unknown to all parties put out a GoFundMe uh, to okay. support the, the family. And it was very successful. Um, that then drew the attention of an individual called Tommy Robinson, he put out a counter-narrative to say that Jamal was X, Y, or Z bullying himself, um, which was not true. So we wrote to Mr. Yaxley Lennon, you know, Tommy Robinson, and said, look, you need to recount on this. What you're saying is untrue, and this is defamation. He, in fairness, initially then admitted that he'd been had, went and publicly stated that, um, that he'd been misled, and that was the end of it, so we thought. But some time after that, um, he then started repeating these false claims and that's when we ended up taking defamation action against Tom Robinson on behalf of our, our client. Ultimately that case took some time to get to court because of COVID and the courts were closed. Um, all the evidence was put forward. The court decided against him, Mr Robinson, and in our favour and uh, Mr Yaxley Lennon and Tom Robinson then claimed bankruptcy to avoid paying the legal costs and the the da- damages of 100,000 years to to the child for defaming him. So um, just to clear like that whole situation, not even with Tommy, but with the actual kid, so that was believed, what, because you're saying it was a lie, basically? Yeah, it was a lie. Yeah. So what was the actual truth with that situation? What was the reason that that kid threw him on the floor and poured water on his face? And oh, that was just, that, that, yeah, that, no, that was a campaign of bullying that he'd been suffering for two years. Right. Uh, that, that, that kid and his group had been consistently bullying um, Jamal, targeting him they were in the same sort of so that stemmed yeah. from nowhere just bullying it wasn't just, like the kid saying anything to him or anything like that it was just no, it was general, bullying. general bullying consistent bullying and there was you know literally hundreds of pages of school reports that that evidence that which is what the court gets got to saw and that's why the decision went in uh, in our client's favor mm. would you say that was one of your biggest cases in terms of like actually you know feeling good about yourself like okay cool i've brought a kid i've given the kid justice basically the family justice to an extent, yeah. To to an extent, I think the thing is that the whole process was is not helpful either um, to the child or his family. It would have been much better for the for Jamal and his family had Tommy Robinson not get got involved. Really, nobody wants to have their face splashed all over the international news, um, you know, forever to live there um, in relation to to horrible events from childhood. We, we're usually quite lucky as you know human beings that all the horrible things that happen to us when we're growing up, we get to forget about, you know. Mm-hmm. You put them in your past. But something like this, which is then living on the internet for the rest of your natural life, um, that's not something anyone really wants. But I do feel good about the fact that a team of lawyers um, decided to help a, a young child and get him as, ju- as much justice as our legal system can afford. And I particularly feel good about the fact that the entirety of this country pulled together to to you know give give him resources that helped him move uh, yeah. from where he was and that that's a great a great thing to have been part of and it's a great thing to see in our country that this country supported this this kid and doesn't like to see abuse being done um how old would he be now Jamal? uh he'll be 
2021 now. Oh, wow. He's yeah. actually... So that must happen ages ago. Because I'm four 24. So, yeah. like, he's a pretty much a kid at the same he time. He was, yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So, um, the cases that I know, obviously, yeah. Um, so, Jamal, Shumima Begum, uh, Michael Adi Baloja back in the day as well. I, no, I didn't. She, she, that's misreported. So, there's a misreporting. Yeah, okay, so... It's good to get you on to hear that. Sure. I, I was never Michael Adi Baloja's lawyer. No. His lawyer was a guy called Sagir Hussein, a solicitor from HMA Solicitors. Right. Um... But there was an individual who was connected with Michael Azubelojo called Abu Nusayba. His daughter, right? Uh, No, no. Abu Nusayba was an individual who was in the community in the space, knew Azubelojo, and then eventually at some point was arrested having given an interview to the BBC. Um, And I was involved with that. He was connected to Michael Azubelojo, but he was not part of that entire situation. Okay. So, so there's a so you've heard that before where people automatically assume that well not assume that is literally what you know when you write in your name mm-hmm. that is something that is connected to you. Um, there was something else that said Jihadi jo- uh, Jack as well. Yeah, I'd, not again, related. Not related. Yeah, that's wild. Okay. And that's why like it's very dangerous reading certain things because they make connections and put your names. <laughs> your names are in the same article as these people. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think that just speaks to the lack of professionalism of certain journalists. Mm. Really, I mean, they could have called me and checked. Obviously, they didn't, yeah. and then it now lives there as if it's a fact. But you know, there will if if Michael Ajibolojo had beaten a path to our door and asked us to represent him, of a certainty we would have represented him. You know, uh, so there's no no negativity towards lawyers doing their jobs for clients, whatever they're accused of. But this is just factually incorrect. So when it comes to um, being a solicitor or a lawyer, etc., how do you pick like what you wouldn't take when you say, yo, I'm not even going to bother taking this one because it's just like... And not for the case of it's mm-hmm. not interesting because I know you said it's interesting, but is there a level of morality where you might say, yo, this case is too deep for me that like I don't even want to be associated with this and have to <laughs> sit in court? Sure. I mean, I think everyone has their personal views about matters, but mm. solicitors and, and lawyers generally, we are not supposed to put our personal views forward. You mm-hmm. know, but The fact is, is that if you're a criminal lawyer all your clients are accused of crime, a good percentage of those people are going to be guilty of those crimes. That doesn't mean that you believe in what they're doing or you support what they're doing. You're not supporting criminality. What you are doing is you're supporting people who have the right to a defence, like all of us do. Mm-hmm. So we don't. There, there is no rule to say, and it would be against the rules to say, that you don't take on something because you've got a personal view about it. Otherwise, you wouldn't take on many of your the cases that you have. Mm-hmm. And it would leave people without representation. Um, having said that, we are meant to look at our resources, what, what capability we have, what our skill set is. And if we feel that we don't have the skill set to take on a case, so if somebody were to come to me to say, can you do with my convincing? I don't have that skill set. I have to say, no, I can't, can't take that on because uh, I, you know, it would be negligent for me to try and deal with that matter. Or if we're too busy and we can't take on a case and it will require an amount of effort that we can't, give to it then we'd, we're duty bound to say sorry we'll pass it up and if some cases you feel that your own situation will will not allow you to do the best job for your client mm-hmm. then you should also say to them this is your position and you feel that others or maybe a different lawyer would have uh, a greater amount of ability to help really in that scenario but there isn't a, a moral rule to say I wouldn't take on the case mm-hmm. it'd be wrong to do that because you're deciding who should get a defence and who shouldn't, whereas everyone's entitled to do a defence. Yeah, but I guess at the same time, like, other solicitors, like, what you might not have a problem with another solicitor might not, which is kind of what I think I figured, because, like, there's some lawyers that, as I say, specialise in certain things, probably for that reason, like, 
they may protect people that are accused of tax invasion but wouldn't defend the murderer. Do you get what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, look, if you're if you're a lawyer and you've got a young child, you know, who's uh, three, four years old, yeah. and then somebody accused of, let's say, Maddie, Madeline McGann's murder comes along, you, you might be emotionally affected by that in a way that you may feel would affect your ability to, to defend that person. Um, but that would be a personal decision. In terms of your profession, professionalism means um, affording people their rights, wh whatever your personal feelings are. Mm. So I would say that it would be unprofessional to pick and choose clients um, based upon your personal views about it. You know, But if they were so strong for a given set of circumstances that you felt that you couldn't do your job properly to them, then mm. it would be wrong for you to take on that case. Fair enough. Um, so with Shamima Begum, obviously, you know, I've been listening to the podcast, mm -hmm. etc. That is one of your clients, right? Shamima Begum's family is, is my... Yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, I was instructed by them back in 2015 when she left. Uh, uh, we were there to advise them about, you know, what can and can't be done in terms of assisting bringing her back. And that very much evolved over the years. We, we represented her briefly in order to get her appeal in um, because she was stuck in a, in a refugee camp in Syria. And so I attempted to go to Syria, or did go to Syria, to try and get an instruction, because there was a time limit about when she could launch an appeal. After that, though, because we don't have a legal aid contract to deal with those type of cases, we then had to pass that case on. I think it was Gareth Pierce who does have a legal aid contract and right. could re resource that. Yeah, so her family's uh, come to you, and I know in the podcast from, I think it was episode one, mm -hmm. where basically you've gone to the house, right? And you've yeah. figured... So what was your... I didn't even know it gets that deep, like, with solicitors, I'll be honest, where you guys actually go into... That's somewhat investigating it, right? It, 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 yeah, I mean, it, it generally isn't what solicitors do, but this was a very unusual situation. Um, and, the, and the police at the time, the family felt, were not being very helpful, and we were very surprised. One of the reasons we went to the house was we were very surprised that the police hadn't been there mm. to investigate and look for these things. That is the job of the police or investigators generally isn't the job of lawyers. That's what I would have thought. And so when we did get there, we found all the fact that their homeworks had suddenly trailed off. They were, they were clever students. They were engaged with education in a very positive way. They left their homework books behind. And when we looked through, the, sorry, when we looked sorry. through their homework books, we found that about two weeks before they'd left, they basically weren't doing their homeworks, right. which was very unusual. But that's an important thing to have discovered, that you know, they obviously started thinking about a serious plan to go to Syria two weeks before, because if you think you're going to Syria, What's you're, point? you're not going to do homework. your homework, right? But yeah. the, but that that then gives you a time frame of which to focus your investigation on. And the police hadn't bothered with that, so mm. we're like, well, why haven't the police bothered with that? That's what you would have thought it's an ABC thing to do. What else did you find? Like um, when you've gone to the house, so you've seen the homework isn't done. Was there anything else that was like a given tell? Well, yeah. I mean, um, you're talking about 15 and a 16 year old kids. Then they're, they're not criminals. They're not people who've been involved in espionage or anything like that. So you'd expect there to be uh, a certain amount of messiness mm -hmm. uh, and evidence or information about their plans and their preparations. Um, there wasn't. There was only one scrap of paper that we found in Shimi and Begum's house with a, a list, a shopping list of things that they'd likely need. And what was really interesting on that list was the word billet, um, because that in Turkish means ticket. Now, none of these girls were Turkish, so why would they write down mm. the Turkish word for ticket rather than the English one? So to us, that suggested that there was somebody, with, you know, probably from the Turkish side, who was giving them instruction 
and they were taking these lists down. Again, something important that the police seem to have missed. Do, uh, how do these, you know, like when people go over and travel and etc. how do they get in contact? Is there like forums and stuff that like people are meeting them in? Like, how did she meet that person? That mm-hmm. even Because as far as I'm aware, there was like a Canadian spy that That's helped right. to assist them get across and etc. And without him, it wouldn't have even been possible in the mm-hmm. first place. How do people like that even meet? people like that and that's not to say oh go and meet the person it's just so i guess even maybe a parent can say oh what is my child on of a certain side you get what i'm saying right i mean i mean it's not like this now but Mm. at the time when isis was in its full till they had entire warehouses full of people who were on the internet and on phones out there on social media trying to identify uh, young people to recruit so they had an entire factory around this um so it wouldn't be the case where you had to go and look for someone they were looking for you. So if you were liking certain posts that were out there that were of a a more um, extremist type ilk, they would then target you and they would work on you, really. Um, And they had a network of people around the world um, in every country Mm. where after having dealt with you over the internet, they then encourage you to be on the phone, build up a relationship with you, give you information. Once they started trusting you, they'd get a local agent to meet you that would create a bond of trust between the individuals and then they would follow instructions. Mm. But in Shamima Begum's case, there were four girls who went to Syria. Um, so one girl went in December 2014 okay. and the police were aware of that and then these three girls went in February. Yeah, can you about the three? Right. So yeah. the first girl who'd gone, she was still in contact with the other three. Right. So it appears that she was the one that was radicalised, had all the information yeah. and that she was encouraging the others through her contact from Syria to put them in contact with the right people to get them abroad. So do you think it was just due to like a lack of care by police, how that even happened? Because well, it was pretty, sho- yeah, it was pretty shocking. Yeah. I mean, you have a girl who's 15 who manages to go to Syria. You know she's gone to Syria. The police were investigating her. They then um, decided to identify her circle of friends, quite rightly so, mm. because from all of the uh, academic literature out there, the thing that informs you about who's going to Syria who isn't is the Pied Piper effect. If one of your friends go, then it's likely that others will go. That's the, that's the only criteria. So it was right for the police to try and ad- identify them. They did identify them, and then they failed to keep tabs of them at all, and these girls then went and joined their mate, who the police knew where oh, they'd gone. So, so they already had tabs on those three girls? Yeah, yeah, they'd questioned them yeah, twice. I, I would assume once you know that one, as you said, they're going to investigate your family, your friends last person you spoke to everybody so they already knew these people but the three children at the time seven the other two oh, so, seven so in there, total. Was, there were seven in total they identified and they were questioning them the problem is they were questioning them without the permission of their parents oh. so eventually they this they eventually wrote some letters um to get permission from the parents in order to question them but they gave the letters to the girls themselves these girls never gave the letters of to course, their parents yeah and that's what we think also triggered them to think well rather than be part of a police investigation that rats out their friends let's go, let's go yeah so mm. we think that that actually might have triggered them in terms of escalating their plans to go so the first girl goes in December mm-hmm. and Shamima and the other two girls go when? February okay so that's like a three month turnover that's wild um, and obviously like we know there's a big intelligence and they know what's going on more time so that's actually quite mm-hmm. surprising so then when do you get informed of it? do the parents sorry so let's do this one bit by bit so February, she's gone. Yeah. What do her parents think or know from what you know of? So at the time, um, the parents just know that their girls had gone, 
uh, out. They told them that they're going some somewhere for some study trip, and then they haven't come back. So it becomes a missing persons issue. They then report that the, their own girls are missing. They don't know where they are. The police very quickly realise that these girls are the ones that are connected to the first girl who's gone to Syria, but they don't tell the parents that. You know? Eventually, the police, a few days later, then talk to the parents and say, well, could it be that they've gone to Syria, what have you, there's this other girl that's gone. That's when the, the, the parents of Shamima and the others realise that this is a trajectory that their, their children might be on. They then don't know what to do. They go to East London Mosque, which is the biggest mosque in the area, and ask them for help. Um, the communications officer in East London Mosque is a friend of mine who knows that I was involved in the, the terrorism space. And so he contacted me then. I happened to be in Finland working on something else, and then uh, he asked me to come. I came back, and then I met the families, and then we, we, we took it from there, really. And this was in 2015? February 2015. Yeah. February 2015. Um, and... Between them, did you get like directly into contact with her? Was it hard to get into contact with her originally? So there was no contact at all. Mm. And that's one of the primary issues that we had is, A, where are these girls? The police had then encouraged, before we got involved, these families to go onto national TV and ask them to come back. That's what made this into a massive sort of media issue. Mm. Um, actually, in terms of information for other people, if this horrible situation happens to anyone else, that's the worst thing you can do. Um, if anyone is on that trajectory, it, it, it involves states and security services as well mm -hmm. to work with each other, and they can't do that easily when something's in the mass media. It's better to work with the authorities to try and bring people back rather than have it go into mass media. But yeah, that's um, that, that 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 issue. It 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 was. It evolved, basically. Mm. The first thing we needed to do was try and get encourage the girls to make contact. We knew that if they're on this journey, they're going to be worried about evading detection. They're probably going to have changed their phones. They may not even be aware of how much uh, media coverage and interest their, their families have in making contact with them. So we developed a plan to go over to Turkey and to push out a hashtag, which was the girls call home. Really. Okay. And we were hoping that if we can get this into Turkish media, Turkish media has a lot of reach into Syria. Mm. So they transmit into Syria as well. Whereas in terms of Syria, it wasn't necessarily the case that they'd be getting BBC reports there. So we went on, to, we went on to Turkish media, pushed this hashtag out, got them to blast it out everywhere, and the girls eventually got, you know, got wind of it, and then they made contact. And then we started working on trying to convince them back so back then i felt like loads of kids were like going to syria or going to other countries and etc um where would that stem from would you say like just for prevention wise sure. where does that stem from i mean to be fair it was very unusual for kids to go shamima begum's case and her, her three friends that's all that's quite unique in that you have children who have on their own recognizance gone over Many children did go, but they were taken by their parents. Mm. So they didn't really have a choice in the matter. Um, but, yeah, I'd say that's pretty unique. But, the, you know, the, the, the youth of the day, let's say, were synergizing, or a certain ilk of them, were synergizing with the propaganda that was coming out of, uh, out of uh, Syria. And, and one of the reasons for that may well be is just because it's a contra approach. So the ISIS were pushing out, if you remember, um, Nutella videos, videos with kittens, you know, pushing out this propaganda that life is really um, amazing there and quite similar to the oh, UK. Really? And not just that, they, I mean, they were putting people up in mansions. They, they had, you know, Syria was 
Six million people have been displaced in Syria. Two million ended up in, in Turkey. ISIS had taken all these properties. They had mansions with chandeliers there. People were stealing cars from Turkey and driving them into Syria. Uh, so you had BMWs and 4x4s. You have this lifestyle of, you know, what, what I guess rappers and, and um, you know, mega millionaires appear to have. Mm. And ISIS were putting foreigners into these houses or mansions with chandeliers with BMWs outside and pushing that out as a sort of lifestyle that you can have for free if you come and join them. You know? Wow, that's crazy. Um, I didn't even know that. Right. So, so that's how they sort of sort of Andrew Tate marketed the housing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They made it look good. They made it yeah, look glamorous, absolutely. basically, for people. And unfortunately, if you're a you know, 14, 15-year-old kid and you're synergized to this sort of, um, sort of this um, internet or social media-type lifestyle, where a lot of influencers, they can't afford the lifestyles they project, but they rent the cars and what have you, and, and that's the messaging that's put. Yeah. Well, ISIS copied that, you know, and so you, you're hitting the same audience with the same message. That is so wild. Because the videos that I knew, obviously, you can imagine, it was, mm-hmm. like, the proper hardcore stuff. I never knew they would do that. But it is smart to, like, do that because it's going to obviously take people in. Well, well I, ISIS um, were a proto-state. They were trying to operate as a, an actual functioning state. And what they were doing and what they needed was to attract people to come to their state. So, you know, it's, it's not dissimilar from Israel. Israel is a state that is designed to protect the Jewish people. And they are always trying to call on people like who are Jews from other countries to come and join their state. They're not going to do that by saying, "Oh, we've got problems with Palestinians here." They do that by saying Tel Aviv is a is a is a technological hotspot. You can invest great money there. You can also have a, a lifestyle that's maybe even better than what you'd have in in European countries. Mm-hmm. So states who need people to join them are going to put their be- market themselves with the the best foot forward. They're not going to talk about their problems. ISIS were trying to do the same thing. They needed people to join them to build this state, uh, to give it legitimacy as well. And so they were marketing it in the same way that other states market themselves, not necessarily as a holiday destination, but certainly towards focused towards the naive. Yeah, so would you say um, the target audience for those kind of people that go over are like people that are somewhat vulnerable going through certain things? Absolutely. absolutely. I don't feel like a kid that is like totally there is going to go out of their way to be that easily manipulated not easily but you know what i'm saying like look, look, you just go out of there do you if know what you, i'm saying if you if you're from a household where you've got uh, mum and dad they're you know middle class so it means that they don't have the financial stresses that are a daily concern for most people they don't have the relationship stresses that come from those financial stresses you've got both parents there you've got siblings and things are going well for you you don't want to go anywhere else you're happy yeah. at home um but if, if you're in an environment which has all of the stresses that that your parents go through and they maybe the parents don't realise how much of an effect those stresses have mm. on their children, then those children become vulnerable without realising that they're, that they're vulnerable. And when you're 14, 15, 16, that's a rebellious phrase. Yeah. You, know, you know, some people, you know, almost nobody, but some people will go and listen to ISIS, but plenty of kids run away from home. Yeah. Plenty of kids get drug dealer boyfriends yeah. or... You know, they'll go and run off with a teacher because they think that the teacher loves them. Mm. You know, this this unfortunately happens to a lot of our kids, and we have to be mindful of that. This was another expression of rebellion, uh, getting away from problems. Yeah. So when you've gone to uh, the Turkish media to pass the message on, was that due to what was, you know, the thing that was on the receipt? Where it said, uh, was it Billet or something like that? Was was, was that because you knew at that point that, like, 
there was a connection there as well? No, no, it's because we knew straight away that they'd gone to Gatwick um, and they'd gone over to Turkey. So we knew that Turkey was going to be the route that they were taking. There was only really two routes into Syria. One was either through Iraq, Erbil, or the other one's through Turkey. And at that time, the preferred route was through Turkey. So when we knew that Turkey was their landing point, that was one of our only um, ways that we could connect with their media to make it relevant to Turkey, mm. uh, that they landed here, they've gone through the route that they've taken from the bus garage, we knew they'd gone to Gaziantep. So all of the local media would have been interested in that because their localities are mentioned, Istanbul and Gaziantep. And it was international news in the UK, and Turkey similarly was international news there. So we knew that if we'd gone there with something, that the media would take that up and, and make it an issue. Yeah. So um, at that point, how long did it take for her to actually get in contact with you? Or the girl, did all two three weeks. of them get in contact with you? All three of them got in contact okay. uh, within a day or two of each other, um, and it was within two weeks of mm. doing that. And when they got in contact, what was like the energy or response? Like they got in contact and said... That they're sorry to their parents about what they've done, the stress that they're concerned. They were actually very clear that they didn't want their parents to follow them. That We didn't know if they were in Syria already at the time or not. Mm. Um, from our previous experiences in this space, our understanding was usually the normal thing would be that people get to Turkey and they're hanging about there for two weeks before things were arranged for them to go over into Syria. This one, that these girls had you know, been thousands of times more efficient than the existing previous model. So we thought we had time in Turkey to try and intercept, intercept yeah, but we, they'd already gone by the time we were in Turkey and we, we weren't aware of that. So at least we knew that where they were then in Syria and we knew that they were in Raqqa, we knew they were there. They were very clear to their family, don't try and follow us because you won't be able to get back. Come back, yeah. Um, and they, you know, in terms of what they thought that they were going to experience, the reality was very different already by the time they'd gone there. So did they put that across to you? Like, basically, this is what we like, it's not, it's horrible. Like, what was their energy? Was it like, we are here and that's it? Or is it like, we want to come back? You know, as a kid, sometimes you might go and do something, then you're like, I want to come back, like, straight yeah, away. It, what was it? Yeah, no, it, look, th this was war and terrorism. Th you know, th this is not normal stuff. Mm. So the fact that they even called, they had to negotiate of that. Course in order to be allowed to even call back. And we were very mindful that those calls were being monitored, really. So we didn't want them to say anything that would get them into trouble on that on their side. Um, our advice to the families was never speak about their situation. Um, tell them that they're always welcome home and that you love them, really. Because at some point, we don't know their situation. And they know their situation in terms of what threats they face. And we know there are threats there but they will find a way to communicate back to us if they you know, if they want to come back. Mm. But if we try and push it, that may put them in active danger on that side. Yeah, because it's not like going to a phone box on the road and just going like, hey, like, whatever. They would have had to have spoke to whoever, and that person's probably standing, standing right, right next there. to them. Yeah, with a, with with a gun to their head. Exactly. Yeah, 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 no, exactly. So they can't obviously be open and honest, but at that time, how is everyone looking at it? Are we looking at, like, is it just like, they obviously you want to bring them home and stuff, but... Mm if they also don't want to come home at that time, and this was very recent after it obviously happened... No, they, 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 I mean, be clear, they weren't, they weren't entertaining coming back home at that time. OK. Right, so our thinking was, was this, was that you have three young girls who've never been in relationships before. The reality is they're over in Syria. The reality is they're going to get, quote-unquote, married. That's going to be their first sexual relationship, and that person is going to die within six months because the turnover of men who are fighters there 
most of them die within six months. Mm. So what, what will that do to the psychology of a 16-year-old? Your first love, wherever you think that is, is then dead within six months. Where are you going to go? The likelihood is they're going to turn to their parents. So that was a, a absolutely horrific uh, you know, set of things to think about. And the reality was, was that there's extreme danger to them. There's nothing we can do about it. We have to wait for some tragedy to happen to them so that they're then motivated to come back. And that's what the waiting game was then about. Then our job was to build up as much information as we could mm. around the on-the-ground situation in Raqqa, Syria. We were given help by various agencies to work that out and individuals who could tell us what the best routes were. And we just put a plan together and then waited. Mm. And within a year, what we expected happened happened to Khadija Sultana, and she very much wanted to come back home. So that was one of the other girls, was it? That's right, yeah. Okay, yeah. So... There was, uh, did the three girls know each other prior? Or was it just like... Yeah, three? they did. They were in the same class at school. Oh, wow. Yeah. They are in the same class. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, that makes sense how they could easily... Yeah, because as you say, friends are friends. You speak exactly. to one person and it passes on and etc. So she's got in contact with, you know, people, her family back home here? Yeah, she did. So so she'd explained what had happened. Um, what had happened? Well, so she'd got married, quote-unquote. Her husband had gone off on a mission and died she was then put into a communal sort of uh, building with lots of other people whose husband didn't have husbands and then was moved into a mansion on the outskirts of Raqqa where a family were overseeing her. Because like, ISIS know that if a girl's going to lose a, lost her husband, she probably wants to now leave, really. Mm. Uh, so they have minders with them. So we'd, we'd put a plan together then. Um, we, she'd managed to communicate with us through a Wi-Fi connection that was close to her and her phone um, and she felt it was secure so our plan was was there was a group of you know very brave individuals um, who operated in Turkey and Syria and they helped get people out and they, they, they were doing this as their sort of their thing their mission mm. we'd been in contact with them and, and we'd communicated to Khadija that she needs to start pretending she's got a toothache so she needs to go to the dentist really this will allow her to travel alone to a dentist, and she needs it relatively regularly, which meant that whoever's watching her would, would then get used to the idea that she leaves alone from a house. And in Syria, women don't walk around alone. They have to have a male guardian, usually. Um, and she gets into a taxi, and, she, and it's known that she's going to a dentist. And on one given date, that taxi driver would have been one of our people who then drive her basically to the border, but only when we've got information about the checkpoints and which checkpoints we would be able to avoid and which ones we couldn't. If she got stopped at a checkpoint in a taxi alone, knowing they're a dentist, that would be risking her life. But that was the plan. And um, she, we, we, we put that in motion. Uh, we tested it a few times. And then the day where she was supposed to go, um, she'd learned that two, two girl, Austrian girls had tried to leave uh, Syria, were caught by ISIS and were murdered. They were beaten to death wow. in the street. So she recalibrated and thought she wasn't willing to take the risk, and she decided to abandon the plan. We were actually waiting on the Syrian border for, for her, and the plan was abandoned. And then within a few weeks, um, her building that she was living in was, was bombed by, uh, by a Russian airdrop, uh, and she and a lot of people died in that. Wow. Okay, yeah, because um, I've spoke to people, and you know they knew about the three girls, but... I never knew one of them died. I know that we always hear about Shamima Begum and etc. Mm -hmm. I thought the other two just lost contact, but she's like officially. She's she's dead. yeah. We're we're there's no such thing as official. 
uh, because it's a war zone. But yeah, in terms of the information that's come out from the sources that's come out, we're unfortunately quite confident, yeah, that, that, that she was killed in that. And Amira Abbas, we're pretty, pretty sure that she's probably uh, now dead as well, basically. That's deep. So, um, Shamima Begum, uh, at this point, so how long is that after them going? That, so, that, they, so, December the first girl goes, February the girls go. Yeah. Um, you get in con, you put something out in, not you, but like everyone all together basically puts uh, something in the Turkish media, mm-hmm. goes to Syria. Syria, um, they get in contact with you guys, but obviously they can't really say too much. Sure. You're kind of just waiting on a tragic situation to happen to, like, you know, get emotion from it. Um, how long is that after? We're looking. That was around March, April, twenty sixteen. Oh wow, that's just so, a year. Yeah, bit. so a year and a bit. But in terms of, um, there there were times within that where one of their husbands has gone out and they haven't come back with, in time. They've not been they've not been back for a week or two. Right. And then these girls assumed the worst, um, but then they came back. So I think her, uh, Khadija's husband had gone out, and it was some considerable time before confirmation came back to her that her husband had died that's crazy mm-hmm. it, it's crazy to think because you know like uh you were born here right yeah right. yeah so you were born here but your dad was born in bangladesh that's right yeah. so like us being born here that is like so unnormal but that's like quite normal out there yeah like, we, we grew up quite normal you know no bombs no worrying about your husband or wife dying um, dying yeah. and that is just crazy. I mean, I, I've known it exists. I'm not naive to it, but that's I mean, just wild, like, like I mean, actually hearing. Most most of us were, like, second or third generation. That's completely alien to us. Yeah. But our parents often came from Water that countries. exact situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, like, Bangladesh was created in 1971. There was a civil war there. Loads of people were being murdered by their neighbours. Mm. A lot of the Bangladeshis in this country fl- were here because they were fleeing from that. Yeah. Uganda was the same thing. A lot of the Asians here were... You know, their families were murdered in, in Uganda by Idi Amin you know, yeah. in this, against, you know, in the 80s. So our parents know this, uh, a lot of us, and they've shielded us from all that history. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. They've never talked talk to us about those things because they didn't want to traumatise us. That just shows how privileged we are actually being. It. I'll be honest to you because that is mad. Like, you know, we hear it and you see it on the news, but you know, like, if you actually sit and process that, like, a 15-year-old, 16-year-old having to go through that is wild. Well, it's, pretty, it's, well, well, it's pretty. Anyone, anyway, well, it's pretty common if you go to you know Congo or you you've got child mm. soldiers who are five or six or seven, you know Uganda you still have child soldiers there. Uh, we we are we are unusually well you know looked after in countries where we have the rule of law like in the West and what have you, and you know we're well protected from that. But unfortunately, in parts of the world where there isn't the sort of governance that exists, the level of abuse that that people are you know, find as their normal daily life, you know, we, we, we'd be in therapy for the rest of two, yeah, two lifetimes. Let yeah, alone, yeah, yeah. Let yeah alone it's that. crazy. Yeah, you always hear people that have um, come from, you know, like other third world countries saying, you know, they've seen dead bodies and there's playing with guns from young and they've saw people get shot and killed mm-hmm. and crazy stuff and bombs going off. It's actually insane. Um, so this is 2016. 16, yeah. We're at 2016 right now. Uh, that's happened. Khadija, that's her name, right? Khadija Sultan. Passed yeah. away. Oh, well, there's been an explosion at her building. What is the next, like, with the other two girls now, what's the point? Yeah, what's the plan? So, so at that point, um, we're, we're somewhat disengaged as a law firm from from that scenario. We, what we've said is, if any of these girls want to come back, then get in contact with us, because there's nothing much for us to really do. The situation's stalemate. The, ki- the kids are there. They're getting on with their lives. The family are here. They know what they're allowed to do legally and not legally. There's not much else for us to do. 
And then, you know, other things happen with Amira Abbas and the Daily Mail and these sort of issues where the Daily Mail try to cat, try, try to do a, a sort of entrapment scenario on her that goes into the press. But these were sort of small issues. And then contact, the situation in Syria escalates in terms of the war. Mm. Um, you, you have the Americans start getting involved as well. And um, areas of Syria are being coordinated bombing is happening in those areas with the Syria with, with the the Syrians the Russians and the Americans all bombing various different positions what that does is completely disrupts communication you know uh, water supply is cut off electricity is sporadic and the mobile phone and internet networks are, are pretty pretty uh, depleted so we the family got used or the families here got used to not being in contact with their kids for extended periods of time um, as the war escalated even more there's less and less contact and so, personally, by the time we're in 2019, I'm assuming that, that everyone's probably dead because there's been no contact for so much time and the war has escalated to such a, a large point. Um, and then, you know, in, uh, in uh, again, early 2019, I get a phone call from the Times newspaper um, saying that, oh, um, oh yeah, you know, we've, we've, we've found uh, Shamima Begum. So I, th I thought they'd joke. I thought it was a, thought it was a journalist who was uh, sort of just... Uh, you know, having a cruel joke or something. So I asked them to confirm whether they've got proof of life, um, as in a recording or pictures or something. They said they did, at which point I then had to think about, well, what we're going to do with that, really. Mm. And that's where this whole recent furore kicked off. She, you know, uh, Anthony Lloyd, who was a journalist there, had done a, an interview with her, an extended interview with her. He'd put it out verbatim. He hadn't put any editing on that. And at the same time, we've got a conservative party that's and a government that's falling apart and moving into a leadership election bid. One of those people is, uh, you know, uh, is uh, Sajid Javed, and he effectively seizes on the situation of Shamima Begum. Um, Home Secretary, right? Home Secretary yeah. at the time, but he's trying to become leader of the conservative party and throws her under the bus in order to help himself in his, in his bid to be leader, basically, because he, he revoked her citizenship. Yeah, so even with that, so that was 2019, was it? You 2019. Wow, time is just flying. We're in 2023 right now, and I remember it like it was yesterday. Well, it's because COVID seems to have taken two years out of our collective sort of experience, really. Yeah. We were on pause for a couple of years, 2021 20, and 22. so, yeah. Yeah, because I remember when they went missing, mm -hmm. um, and I remember the interview that I believe you're on about as well during that time. So even with that, there's like a lot of people, there's a force here where, you know, some people are like, bring her back some people are like don't bring her back because she's dangerous etc mm -hmm. i believe at the time you can correct me if i'm wrong the narrative that everyone's under because i can't remember the interview word sure. for word i'm gonna be real but it was that she basically said in the interview like she doesn't regret going mm -hmm. um and yeah she don't regret basically she don't regret going to isis mm -hmm. um, which obviously it's weird because some people might say it in the sense of you know, I, like me, I don't regret going through bad things because it built me as to who I am today. But some people might take it as there's no remorse and you don't really give a shit and you haven't changed. You get what I'm saying? No, that's interesting. It's, it's absolutely fair for people to form a view based upon what they've seen on the words. But the context is important. So she had already, uh, you know, she'd been in ISIS territory with her husband and her kids for some time. Um, ISIS had actually arrested her husband and tortured him, really, after because they thought he was a spy or what have you. Was this, did she only have one husband during only, that time? Yeah, he's still alive. Oh, so that was yeah. just one guy the whole time? One guy, okay. yeah. He's one of the, one of the few that one survived, the yeah. That did, yeah, yeah. He's a bit of an outlier, you know, <laughs> buck the trend of that one. But he, his name, you know, he's a Dutch national and he's in, in custody now in Syria. 
But after that experience with ISIS torturing him, they then decided that they wanted to get out, really. Um, she makes her way to... Uh, she's heavily pregnant, so she makes her way to the closest place, which was Al-Hol refugee camp. Um, in there, Al-Hol was designed for 20,000 people. By the time she's there, it's 80,000 people are there, many of which are hardcore ISIS supporters. And the SDF, which is the uh, Kurdish sort of force that controls that area, they barely have the resources to govern that place. So they can keep people in, but they can't govern what goes on inside. Now, anyone who said anything against ISIS would be killed in that camp. Yeah? And even as she was saying the things she was saying, she was saying it while she was surrounded by 80,000 hardcore ISIS supporters. And other women who'd spoken against ISIS, they'd been murdered in that camp by having their children and their tents set on fire, wow. and they themselves... So in that context, even she said something. She what she actually said in that was, yeah, what did she say? Yeah. "I don't." She goes, "I don't agree with everything ISIS had done." That's the only thing negative she said towards ISIS, because she said that she was targeted then for execution by the people in those camps. The SDF, who were the the, the Kurds, they had to then take her out and move her to a different camp to save her from. She's survival. still there now, right? She's still there, yeah. and the interviews she'd given from that camp are very different in complexion to the one she gave at El Hol. But the fact is, if you're saying something to the media, then, of course, people are going to take that on face value. They're not going to know the context behind it. So you feel it's because of um, where she is. Like, basically, she says... And I can hear it. Uh, it, it makes sense what you're saying. If you're surrounded by AE, um, I guess, like, extreme or radical people, that sure. will literally blow your head off, like, for, you know, going against whatever... Um, or they'll talk to you or do whatever, you are probably going to say what they want to hear. But, that, but also, she was, you know, she was 15 years old when she went to you know, ISIS-controlled Syria. Mm -hmm. She had a life there. She had somebody that she was living with, her quote-unquote husband, mm -hmm. and she had some kids. And she's steeped in, in ISIS you know, uh, propaganda all the time. The idea that she's going to reject that completely is, uh, is, is, is not supportable. Now, if you look at the BBC podcast, it's called I'm Not a Monster, yep. about her, but it's, it's the second podcast about it. The first one is about other Syria, uh, other kids who were in Syria as a, you know, a young American boy who made a video um, where he was threatening the Americans that he's going to blow himself up and kill them with an AK-47 at the age of 10. Now, that, that kid, the Americans managed to go in, bring him out, reunite him with his father in America... Um, his mother's in prison for jo joining ISIS. At the age of 10? Oh, because the, the mum brought him over. Brought him over, okay, yeah. Okay, I was about to say. With, her, with the stepdad. And that kid is now fully well rehabilitated back with his father and is functioning really well. Mm. So with children, you can save them. Yes, you yes. Know? Um, That's true. And, and I'd encourage people to look at that first podcast as well because we're saying yeah. any child is flexible enough to be rehabilitated yeah, and Shamima Begum is, is no different. 100%. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Like, kids are malleable, you know, at a certain age. Mm -hmm. um, you're not really, like, stuck in your ways. You only know what you're surrounded by and information you're taking in. So if you flood that child with... Positive. Certain, issues, yeah, yeah, with a certain thing, then obviously they're going to do that. So, um, yeah, that makes sense. Obviously, the in the description, all the episodes will be there that are out already. There's only two out so far. Two right? out so far, yeah. And there's going to be ten. In total, yeah. Mm. So uh, she's done that interview. She's moved to the next camp. Um, did she ever do another interview at the other camp? She did, yeah. She did a series of interviews. And I think she's still doing interviews. Cause I, cause I've seen uh, like pictures and there was a question that a lot of people asked me and they was like, in one interview, she's like, you know, dressed up in a burqa, etc. Mm -hmm. In the other one, she's more modern, which they believed to be like, 
kind of like she's a manipulation. Yeah, like manipulation. Mm. How does that? Yeah, what is, what is to that? Why well, did she change her total thing from being like you know a Muslim woman dressed up burqa to being kind of more European? I, I would say that if you look at the trajectory of Shibi Megum's life, she's somebody who's influenced by her environment. Yeah. So you know when she was in a school in London. She was influenced by her friends, and she went over. You know, she took on a certain approach and and uh, and clothing style that was similar to her friends. Mm-hmm. She went over to Syria because her friends went to Syria. She stayed in Syria. She was influenced by the people around her, and when she decided to leave and get out of that, because basically ISIS tortured her husband, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that that would break your your interest with the group that you thought you liked if they're attacking your own family members. And she finds herself in a camp, and the clothing she wears there is again a product of her environment. The you know the Syrians are pretty a secular bunch of individuals. Right. They don't wear Islamic clothing generally, mainly military fatigues or jeans. They're pretty westernized, mm. and so it's no surprise to me that someone like Shamima Begum, who's always been influenced by her environment, is now influenced by her environment. Really. So, your connection to all of this is what trying to bring when they're ready to try and come home right yeah um our, our task or the promise i made her mother is i'll do everything i can in my power to bring her daughter back uh and that's it really uh what happens to her after is is a matter that you know she is a young woman now she's the author of her own destiny mm-hmm. if she were to come back right now she isn't the author of her destiny because she's in a refugee camp and the british government's trying to stop her from actually coming back to the uk so they've taken her citizenship, citizenship right? away. Yeah, so she's basically not even a UK citizen anymore. At, at the moment, she's not a UK citizen, and she has the right to uh, appeal that decision, which is what she's doing. How long mm. does that process take? So these are SIAC processes. They they take between two and four or five years, they can. Um, I think in her case, you know, it's been a few years. We've had COVID as well as a delay, but we're expecting a decision around about February, March, and that decision may or may not be appealable as well, depending on which way it goes. Mm. So I think there's a bit more mileage in this, um, even still, really, in the courts anyway. What do you think would happen? Like, you know, if she's her appeal comes through, if she's allowed to come back, does she then get prosecuted? Is I, she allowed to just come back to normal life? What is the procedure of that? So in terms of a criminal prosecution, um, there'd have to be evidence of her committing a criminal act. Now, her joining a terrorist organization is against the law and was against the law. That's what I thought, yeah. um, Even in 2015, it's, you know, joining a prescribed organization. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing for with that is that the UK police, Mark Rowley, who's now the head of the Metropolitan Police, um, declared at the time that should these girls come back, they'd be treated as victims and not criminals. Um, and that's in writing. So there's a legitimate expectation against prosecution for that. There's other reasons as well because of trafficking and the rules around that, human trafficking, that they that, that speaks against the prosecution. Um, but what is said in that communication from the police is that if there's evidence of further crimes, then they would be prosecuted for that. Uh, at the moment, we've seen no evidence of any further crimes, but that's something the police may have in their back pocket, and if she were to come back, I'd imagine there'd be a lot of pressure on the police to bring a prosecution against her. Yeah. But that that's for tomorrow, basically, because... We don't, we don't know if they have any evidence. We imagine if they did, that they probably would have deployed that anyway with the Home Secretary to make that decision to strip her. And we haven't seen anything that is suggestive of that. Mm. So her coming back here, um, that would just be... I'm not going to lie, me personally, it, it, it's a weird one because like, you look at it, there's a child that's obviously being groomed mm-hmm. and taken over there. 
at the same time, that person's a risk to England. You really don't know what's going. You don't even know what's going through my head right yeah. now. Do you get what I'm saying? So it, it, well, I, hope, a, I hope it's not too violent. No, no, no you're good. <laughs> right, right, right. Everyone knows me good enough, but. Yeah, we don't know, you know. If you look at my track record, it's quite clean. You're not going to, you know, just see, like, mm-hmm. I've done that. Obviously, if you look at hers and she's gone there and um, even what she's been around, it, it can do one of two things, really. It could shape you to say, like, fuck that. I don't want to be a part of this at all. I'm gone. It could build more thing in there. Um, what would you say to, like, people in the public maybe watching this that have, like, absolute, absolute resentment? Cause I don't really resent her because she was groomed. Mm. And I know as a kid, you can... If I wanted to manipulate a 15-year-old kid, I very easily could. It's not hard to... Especially on top of you saying, you know, they were showing mansions and nice houses mm. and made it look glamorised. It's not hard to... You know, as you said, with county lands, you know, kids get groomed to Absolutely, do that all yeah. the time. Kids run away from home. So I know if you've got a vulnerable kid... Um, just depends what's in front of their face at the time they'll gravitate towards. What would you say to people in the public? Well, I think there's, you know, a, a bunch of people, a constituency of the public who are going to look at someone like Shamima Begum and re- reject her anyway, just race or religion, even mm. if she didn't go to ISIS. So I'm not trying to convince a racist or someone not to be a racist. That's a, a small bunch of people. Um, anyone who's got an open mind about it, they ought, I think, my argument would be, that taking somebody who was the poster child of ISIS, rehabilitating them back into the UK, is the biggest win that we can have against uh, the siren call of terrorism in the future. Because she is someone who was British, who was um, groomed and responded to the call of extremism. And she also then rejected that call of extremism and tried to bring her way back to the UK. Mm. There is no greater authority than her as to how bad a decision that was and how um, easily manipulated children can be, she is the greatest authority in that. And I think that is a resource that we should use in order to dissuade people ever falling into that trap um, from her experience and using her experience to dissuade people from doing that. And I think, you know, from a security point of view, that that's the biggest win. Is she, on the downside, is she a threat to the UK? Mm. Well, we, we've got MI5, MI6, counterterrorism police, and if they can't collectively deal with a 19-year-old or 23-year-old kid now, a singular person, then we're wasting our money with them, really. Mm. Uh, we've got plenty of people who've been convicted of terrorism, gone to prison, and now been released, um, who we accommodate as a, a uh, mitigated risk in society. There's about 20,000, right? Well, there's 20,000 being watched, yeah. but there's ma- many hundreds who've been arrested... And now there's, you know, quite a significant number who serve their time and come out. Mm. Um, being in society is about managing risk, like crossing the road is managing the risk. Um, and we, we do our best to manage that. But for, for us, I, don't, I personally don't think that we are so poor in resourcing that we can't deal with a single girl who is, whose face is known internationally now um, on a daily basis. Mm. To be fair, it's a good way to, you know, if you're watching this with an open mind, which I would suggest everyone has, hopefully, mm-hmm. when you hear what you're saying, it's kind of true. Like, if you had someone, you know, the story, as you said, the poster girl for ISIS mm-hmm. has gone there, being, you know, trafficked over there or groomed or whatever, gone over at 15, she, it's been horrible, this is her experience, this is whatever, but you get to see that side of it. I guess it does kind of send the message out to, like, other kids and other people that may even have looked at her as, like, an icon to say, like, yeah, I'm going to ISIS like her, but then I guess you've seen... The whole story I mean, to it. And it's, it's not without precedent. In in France, the French uh, have used a woman called Bouchard who went through a similar sort of process. And they've used her very successfully to help de-radicalise other people. Mm. So 
it's one thing for some a police officer to turn up and say, oh, you shouldn't join ISIS, or these are all wrong, um, a wrong thing to do, because people who are already on the road to being radicalised, they're going to reject it. But they don't care what you have to say. Yeah. You're the enemy. Whereas if you've got someone who's gone through that process and say, look, I've been where you've been, you and you don't know what you're talking about, I've yeah. been there, because you're looking at the, the shiny media stuff, or social media stuff, when you actually get to the other side, it's not kittens in the teller, it's bombs and your friends dying, not having food and no medicine and you're watching your own children die or your mm. partner being tortured by the people you thought that were your friends that's the reality and that's what i went through and that's why i went and that's why i came back um that's a much more powerful message yeah than you, you, you went over to syria didn't you i did yeah. and it said that you got stopped by but detained by detained the, by what does that mean what was the process to that okay so um we'd gone over to syria i wanted to make contact with begum so she was aware that her uh, process of stripping her citizenship had happened, she could sign some forms. It was in order to activate the, her legal right to challenge. So I'd gone over there, managed to get the authority and the permissions from um, their, their sort of working government to go to the camp. You have to go to various places to get these permissions. Um, but by the time we got to the camp, there was a massive flood of refugees coming because the operation in Baguz had happened, where, where they were really piling on the, the bombing of the last stronghold of ISIS. And out of that area, thousands of refugees were coming in and flooding into these camps. Um, so the limited resources the SDF had in protecting these camps were being diverted to the threat that may be posed by, by these, um, these refugees or ISIS hidden within these refugees. So what, by the time we got to the camp, we had basically the, the camp soldiers were, were 16-year-old, 17-year-old kids with AK-47s who were barely literate in their own language. So they couldn't even read the orders that we've got in their language. Mm. Um, and they were so nervous that they were, well, we were scared that they, you know, that they were going to be trigger happy. And they didn't, they couldn't, re they didn't know what we were. They'd never dealt with like lawyers or anything like that before. Mm. So out of fear, I think they just basically pointed their guns at us and made us sit in a, in a holding cell for a good half hour while they went through our phones. I'm not entirely sure why they went through our phones because they weren't, they couldn't read their own language, let alone <laughs> English. So, but, you know, they, they were just panicked. Yeah. It was a dangerous situation. That would have been. Um, yeah. What's going through your head at that time? It's This is a 16-year-old kid who's crapping himself and he's got a gun. That's not a good place to be, yeah? So the only thing to do in that situation no, is to calm him, down calm him down and calm them down. So just to take a very, very measured approach to explain as best you can in a calm tone because they're panicking, you need to not panic. Mm. And to basically keep repeating, these are your orders, these are what to do. In the end, they realised that we're not a threat, we're not here to like do some operation on them or what have you, and then they told us just to leave because they couldn't get in contact with their commander who would have confirmed the orders. So we were glad to leave without holes in us, frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. That what was, year was that? That was 2019, yeah. Uh, okay. March or April, yeah. Okay, so yeah, um, there's another, you know, like in the recent times, I think you even sent me it with GB News, um, with the whole having a podcast in the first place, a lot of people are outraged because, uh, you know, we spend uh, our was it TV licence. L- licence fee money. Yeah, yeah. licence fee that goes to BBC and that's what they use for everything. Um, and some people weren't happy with that. Do you feel like the BBC needed to do, like use that money to do a documentary on that? Well, I'll say that, look, everyone was trying to tell Shamima's Begum story without talking to her. Everyone wants to take little snippets from what she may have said here or there. And the BBC did interview her before. No one complained about it then in 2019. Um, 
in in those camps. The issue is, is that a lot of people have invested in a position about Shamima Begum. They've taken snippets for something she said or a context, and they're supporting her, or others have taken snippets of what she said, and they just are using that to, to go against her. The fact is, is that the only person who can tell Shamima Begum's story is Shamima Begum. Mm. So the idea that people don't want to hear it, A, and also have it tested, because it should be tested to see whether it's true or false, or which elements of it may be true or unsupported. Well, in fairness, the BBC's podcast is a investigative documentary. They're investigating what she says. So they're, they're allowing her to tell her story, and then they're checking what parts of the story they can check to see if it's true or not. Mm. And I think that's the very essence of journalism, and that's the very essence of fairness. What, why, why would groups of people want other people to tell someone else's story for them? They wouldn't allow it by themselves. You know, if if a couple were going through a divorce, you neither party would be happy that the neighbour tells a story on behalf of them and they can't speak. Yeah. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander, really. So would you say to people that are a bit unsure about the story or, well, just generally everybody, because I guess if the public was like, we want Shamima back, she'd probably be faster to come back, whereas if the public was like, we don't want her, she probably would be even less likely to come. Yeah, so, so. but we, you know... Th- that's not how society works mm. because we don't live in ancient Rome where it's yay or nay. You know? But don't you think a lot of actions that is done, whether that be by the police, by the government, by whatever, is usually by like public, public shift. That's, yeah. I agree with you mm. and I rebel against that. Mm. Yeah, Because our society should not be driven by public opinion, which is driven by tabloid media. Yeah, We have a democracy and we, what that means is we elect people who are supposed to be you know, savvy to make informed decisions based on our rule-based system about what's right and wrong. And what's right and wrong appears to be simple in most situations, but in some cases they're very complex, you know. Uh, and in Shamima Begum's case, it is very complex. Um, I, I, I fundamentally rebel against that idea. And I, on this, I think that that's where our society has gone very badly wrong, in that our politicians are not doing their jobs. They're supposed to be thinking about things in a sensible way and making sensible decisions. Instead, they're throwing that out to the public to work it out over social media and on the front pages of the of the of the Daily Mail and the Mirror. Right? That's not how our system of government should work. Nah, it's definitely not how it should. But that is how it is with all, yeah. with these cases today. Like something could happen. Like, say I've done something and they originally don't press charges on me. Mm-hmm. Everyone in public was like, how haven't you pressed charges on Devonte? What have you done? How come you let DMC get away with this and nothing's been done about it? Those same people would then come back and go back on themselves and do it. Do you get what I'm saying? It's true and it's not true at the same time. Okay. Right? And the reason I say that is because mm-hmm. it's true for most people. Mm-hmm. But if you're Dominic Cummings going to Barnard Castle to test your eyesight by driving and uh, not following the rules, COVID rules that you yourself have made, Guess what happens to you? Even though public opinion wants to hang you from a tree, nothing happens. If you're Boris Johnson with all these parties, you know, dodgily giving contracts to your friends illegally, you know, making you know, taxpayers' money, nothing happens to you. Right? If you're um, if you're any one of these uh, individuals in in politics, who let's say for example, as uh, the what's his name, Zahari, he's not paid millions in tax. Yeah, I see that recently. Right? Yeah. Not, what's happening to him? Nothing. Mm. So if you're of a certain political class or, or let's say, uh, in, uh, establishment class, it doesn't matter what public opinion is, nothing's happening to you. Other than you would get, you'd be forced to uh, resign in most cases. 
Um, they weren't. <laughs> right, the, you know, well, like Dominic, Cummings, Dominic Cummings didn't. D- Dom- Dominic Cummings were pushed out by Boris Johnson later on. Okay. Not Boris Johnson kept him in in his job and backed him as well in his job, even though all of this came out. Um, and then Boris Johnson only resigned after he had multiple oh, parties. Yeah, it, it was hard. It was, to get him out. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, even even Liz Trust, yeah. like she had to she Keep had to screw guy. up the economy by thirty to fifty billion before she'd it's crazy. Out. like. You know, we're arguing about ten billion for the nurses, whether they should get it or not, for the NHS, so that's on its knees. She, she buggers up what thirty to fifty billion in a day, and she just resigns. Yeah. So, you know, we've got we've got we've got a two tier sort of society here. Oh no, without a doubt, there's like politicians and people of a certain like within certain rooms that will be able to get away with things that the average person couldn't. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That goes without saying. But um, with that one, I would suggest people to give it a listen anyway because it will just be... You hear it for what it is, do you know yeah. what I mean? And as he said, no one can tell her story better than herself. So it's been, yeah, very interesting so far. I'm looking forward to the other episodes. Um, with her husband that yeah. is currently locked up still, what, what, for being a spy? No, um, no. So he was locked up originally by ISIS because they thought he was a spy. Mm. And then they released him. And now he's held by the Syrian... Defense for the SDF uh, for being part of ISIS. Ah. So he's had a pretty horrible trip, but he's a pedophile, so deserves it really. Mm. Interesting. Well, yeah, it's a crazy story. That's would you say that's one of your? If you were to say all your cases, I'm sure you've got some form of relation to all of them. But like, what was a case for you where you was like, this was just my? You know, something you wear on your sleeve that you're proud of. Yeah, I mean, there are. You know, lawyers don't tend to go out in public. Um, and and get you know media coverage for their for their clients. That's mm-hmm. a it's more of an American thing. We tend not to do that here. Unfortunately, with Shamim Begum, and I say unfortunately, um, that happened before we were involved because the police had pushed the families into that. That was not the best way to deal with this this case. But once it's out there, then then you have to engage with it. Um, but I guess some of the cases I'm most proud of are the cases that no one knows about, um, and it will remain that way because to to publicise it would be a negative for the people who've suffered those experiences. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's there's, there's 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 moral redress that we do every day that makes the lives of our clients, you know, uh, a little bit more bearable. We hope. Um, but you know, Shamim Begum is certainly there. Her family's there. They appreciate the efforts we've made to try and bring her back. And I think the public debate about it's been important. The idea about can a British citizen who was born in this country, should it, is it ever right to just take their citizenship away, to exile people like you're in ancient Rome? Um, a lot of people didn't realise that the law allows for that, mm-hmm. really, and a light has been cast on this this issue, and that's where the debate becomes important. So is that one of your things, then, would you say, like, in the future, to be able to maybe change that law? Not physically yourself, but obviously once there's something awarded, like, say that gets... Reversed, I guess that law gets looked into differently, right? I, I'd agree with you. I mean, the law the law was there in 2002, but at the time, its reading was you'd have to be engaged in activity that was against the fundamental basis of the state. You'd have to be Guy Fawkes. You're planning to buy Parliament before they could take your citizenship away. Then in 2006, it was changed um, so that the test now is that you're not conducive to the public good. So Shamima Begum, the law that's been used to strip her citizenship is that she's not conducive to the public good and that she's not left stateless. Now, that's a very low test. If you fart in a lift, that's not conducive to the public good, right? <laughs> yeah. If you're in a lift. 
So we, we, we think that that's a very, very dangerously low test, especially when it's in the hands of a politician to, to, to dispense. It, it's not in the hands of a judge who will balance these things. So in normal scenarios, and, and there's been um, uh, David Anderson, who was the Independent Review of Terrorism Legislation, he actually went out of his way to comment on this at the time and to say that actually the, the, the more uh, proper approach would be that the Home Secretary could refer somebody who they thought was problematic to a judge and the judge would then decide whether or not their citizenship was stripped. But what we have now is a very low test in the hands of a politician and Shamima Begum's example shows how a politician can use someone's liberty, someone's actual citizenship, as a tool for their own political career, not on the basis of fairness and reason. And that was in, yeah, 2019 yeah, is when he did that. That yeah. was during that case, yeah, because I did check. That was when uh, Theresa May was in power? Uh, I think, yes, that's right. Theresa May and, yeah, Javid as well. Uh, Javid was Home Secretary. Home Secretary, yeah. Secretary yeah, yeah, Crazy. Well, it's been good to get you on. I do appreciate you sure. coming through, uh, giving your time. As I said, you, My know, you normally don't do this stuff. Mm. I've seen a few interviews, but I know to actually sit down here. Um, I do appreciate it. I think it's insightful as well because... There's a lot of people, you know, that, as I said, that some of the cases that I refer to, people actually believe you're a part of or you was defending them or whatever. So it's good to get your... It's good to put the record straight. But um, as I say, uh, every lawyer's job is to defend clients. And had they come through any lawyer's door, I'd hope that any lawyer would have defended them to the best of their ability. So, um, you know, I wouldn't... The newspaper's saying that I was involved in the case when I wasn't. I, I don't see that as a negative thing. It's just bad journalism. It's just not true. Mm. basically but thank you for having me no definitely appreciate it everyone make sure to subscribe put on notifications um shamima begum's podcast will be in the description as well i would definitely say give it a listen uh it's interesting always i would say watch and listen and take in information with an open mind be objective and also at the same time don't be emotionally led personally i think emotions is very it's good to have emotion and be aware of it but at the same time don't let it control your decision and your mind because that is when you'll just start looking at certain situations um, and, yeah, you'll just drive yourself crazy, to be honest. I'll be real, like, even with you sitting with me, you know, you've seen that I've done um, a podcast with Tommy, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, and even with that, you know, some people that are in their emotions probably would have said, you know, he's sitting with Tommy. Like, some people are upset with me sitting with Tommy. Some people are yeah. probably upset with me sitting with you. But emotions aside, I'm here to just, as I say, get well, well, through. What I say to everybody is I've never met a human being that I completely agree with on everything. And I've never met a human being that I completely disagree with everything. And that's how you should mm-hmm. present. Like, let people have their peace. There'll be things that somebody that you hate will say things you agree with. And you should acknowledge that, that on that you agree with them. Because we, we need to understand that we should not be siloed in tribes. We are people in a society and we're trying to get along. And some of those people will say things that are horrible, but we should also connect on the things we agree upon. I found that quite um, interesting that you said because that is literally society now, right? Like, if there's something that one person says that, even if there's some things you do or don't agree with, it's like you have to automatically just hate everything about them, no matter what they say, because it's that person, it's just not. You know what I mean? That, that, that is pouring acid on the fabric of society. Mm. And we will not have a society and we will not have a country unless that that idea is put a stop to and it's very strong right now i think it's more prevalent than probably most things i think like once you have an opinion like there's going to be people out there that dislike you and you could come out today and say something important and mm-hmm. actually factual that loads of people could relate to and those same people just because they don't like you will still disagree with it even though they agree with it really it's crazy yeah that's called my ex-wife oh 
<laughs> see what I mean? Yeah. It's just like that, you know what I mean? And even with, um, yeah, I was seeing like on Twitter and etc. with you uh, saying like, you know, there's some bits I don't like about Tommy mm-hmm. and there's some bits like, you know, we should give everyone a fair, fair chance yeah. and etc. I found that interesting because most people aren't grown enough to do that. Do you know what I mean? They would use every little chance that they could to just break down someone, break down someone. And I would say that them. those people should sit down and write a diary, yeah? Um, and write down what their opinions are on given topics today. Mm-hmm. And then three years from now, write in their diary on the same issue. Now, they won't agree with themselves even three years later. People sure. evolve. So what are they going to do? Cancel themselves. Because mm. um, would you say that, like, could you, have you seen my podcast, that all that episode? Unfortunately, I haven't seen the whole episode. No. Okay, but you've yeah. seen some bits of it, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay, so we've seen some bits, and you've seen how he talks, etc. You're older than me, so you probably would have seen everything from then to mm-hmm. now. Would you say that there is bits that maybe have evolved? Because I know there was a bit that you said, like, maybe he has. Yeah, I, I mean, thinking. look, what, what Tommy Robinson recently has talked about is the Iraq war, and, and he says about himself that he's done his research into it, and he's now got a view that, was, that the government have been lying to the public and they're against the Iraq war. Now, Tommy Robinson is 20 years late to that particular game. Yeah? The Iraq war, the British public marched against the Iraq war before it happened to a tune of a million people. Everyone knew in their bones it was wrong. Yeah? Um, and it's now been proved to be based upon lies, you know, weapons of mass destruction. So, you know, well done, Tommy, for coming to the table. He's 20 years late to the table. But, you know, um, some people are slower than others, and he's eventually got there, and... Uh, I, I agree with what he said at the end of the day because I'm against the Iraq war, I'm against what happened and I'll say good for you that you've, you've hit upon a truth um, and, I agree, and I, we are in agreement on that that's all there is to say about that because many other things that he's done in the past or said of course I'm against that and, I, and I've stood against that I've spent four years of my life you know, um, holding him to account for the things that he said that were wrong but that was what he said that was wrong when there are things that he says that are right um, I'm not going to go out of my way to quote him. Yeah, I'm sure there are many great and good people who've said the same things, and I'll quote them. But if he happens to say something that's new, nouveau, and is right, I'll say it's right. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. And as you said, people, what you... It's, it's, it's very deep that you say that, because it's true. When you think about it, I'm 24 now, probably certain things I said or thought when I was 21 ain't the same as mm-hmm. what I think today. Do you get what I'm saying? So, yeah, yeah people can change. Uh, yeah, no, so I appreciate the insight anyway on, as I said, Shamima Begum, the other two women as well, Jamal, yourself. It's interesting because I've not sat down. I know a few uh, solicitors mm-hmm. and a lot of people within like the legal system that work in courts and probation and all this stuff, but never actually had a deep conversation to understand what goes through the mind and Fair how point. you even find yourself there, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for the opportunity. No, definitely. So, guys, yeah, as I said, subscribe. Um, we're going to drop an episode every... I was thinking... I actually want to get your opinion on this. Yeah, I yeah. want to go out in public and I'm going to ask people, Do how do they feel about Shamim and Bergen coming back, being here? Would they like it? Would they not? How would they feel, etc.? Because I'd done it with um, mm-hmm. Andrew Tate. Like I asked, do you find think he's guilty? Do you not? And he got crazy responses. But I, the only reason I'm doing it, by the way, because someone said, oh, why would you ask the public this? My thing is... Social media in real life is two different things. Mm-hmm. So what you see on Twitter and Instagram isn't necessarily what people are saying. I agree with that. Yeah. So like when I was out there, females were like, I love Andrew Tate. I like Andrew Tate. He's not guilty. And for me, I was like, wait, but if you go on social media, you think every woman hates him. But mm-hmm. there was like more women actually in support of him mm-hmm. than men when I was out, which I found very interesting. 
Um, I, and, yeah. I think, I mean, the reason we vote in secret is because people will tell you they're going to vote Labour, but actually in, like, they'll vote Conservative in when they're, when they're not got a camera pointing in their face. Yeah. So people will say things in public, they'll say things on social media that, that are designed to fit into their tribe, really. Mm. But in private, they may think something quite different. True. Um, and that's not being two-faced, that's just people surviving in the environment that we're, we find ourselves in. So I think there is some merit in, in asking the public, but you still have to be somewhat somewhat critical about the fact that having a camera in somebody's face uh, may well change how or what they say. True, but I mean, like you see, even with those responses, mm-hmm. I don't think they were meant to say that. Like okay. that wasn't meant. A woman saying that he isn't guilty is not good to the public eye. Like a lot of those women got dragged. Do you get what I'm saying? So when Ch- you think look, about it, it wasn't even the public. It wasn't even a popular opinion for women. Like I, no, I see that. I mean, we, I, Andrew takes a, a particular situation. He, he, you know, it's very clear that there are powers. Um, social media companies and powers that wanted to shut him down because they did that before the or did do that before the criminal allegations and he has also spoken about these events likely to happen to him that he will get shut down mm-hmm. before it happened that he would get arrested before it happened in terms of what has or hasn't happened that's for a court of law to decide albeit a Romanian of court of law and unfortunately you know Andrew Tate's spoken about the corruption in Romania and Use the fact that advantage. exactly yeah. yeah so the problem is you can't you can't set your stall out in Romania saying that you're corrupting the environment and then complaining about By the corruption corrupt. yeah yeah no that that was stupid like mm-hmm. I, I like some things he says some bits I don't like but I did think that was dumb like I saw him talking about um Romania is so corrupt but I'm like bro you was promoting that it was corrupt and that was why you went there because you could get away with stuff and now whatever's happened has happened but um, well, yeah for me it's just yeah. really to just see it in public like how people think like what does the general public actually mm-hmm. think because you know you might read the newspapers and you would think oh, no one wants her back I might sure. go out in public and a lot of people might say you know what she was young and she was a young girl and mm-hmm. she was groomed and maybe she's changed her mind and I don't know so for me it's just to kind of see the deeper thought and not just to be in my own little bubble do you know yeah, what I mean? Fair play yeah, fair yeah play. definitely once again appreciate you coming down and we're out peace